If you could send a letter to your past self before the pandemic to prepare yourself for 2020, what would you say? We asked Californians that same question for this ongoing series presented by JFF. We're here to elevate the voices of people across the state who have been affected by the pandemic and the resulting economic crisis. Through their stories, we will examine what it takes to recover stronger and more equitably. I'm Renee Faulkner, and this is Communities in Recovery. For our final episode in this season of Communities in Recovery, I'm pleased to welcome my colleague, Dr. Mara Lakawan, to co-host with me as we explore the role of a community's infrastructure in supporting inclusive economic recovery. Thanks so much, Renee. It's an honor to help close out our series and to join in our conversations today. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Mara. I'm a senior program manager working on economic advancement strategies here at JFF. In our season one finale, we will hear stories from three people in California, Lauren, Tyrone, and Julius, who have been deeply involved in housing and community development and the impact of the pandemic on their lives, their work, and their communities. Our first guest today is Lauren Kennedy, Executive Director of North Valley Housing Trust, an organization that drives affordable housing solutions in Chico, California. We'll hear her reflect on her personal experiences, as well as this unique moment for her region, which was still recovering from the devastating wildfire of 2018, known as a campfire, when the pandemic hit. Dear Lauren from 2020, most of all, I want to tell you that here in May 2021, I'm okay. You made it. We're actually really, really good. I'm so proud of you. And I am looking back at you with so much compassion for what you are about to go through. I know you think the worst of our personal learning curves and learning curves at work are behind you after a couple of really tough years. But, oh honey, it is going to be such a hard year. Like, much, much harder than you think. For you and for most people. You can't help that. There are both personal and external issues, from grief, exhaustion, burnout, to racism, economic insecurity, political corruption. Problems that are decades old will be accelerated and all need more help than is available, and there is no way to do good work in isolation, and we will feel isolated. The boundaries between our work and all of our other roles will collapse. I'm not sure it matters what I tell you. Sometimes we just have to go through things, but you do get three pieces of advice this year that make a difference. So just in case it helps to hear them sooner, number one, Make it your work to connect. Measure your productivity by the honest, vulnerable conversations you have. You are really good at doing this, so you don't think it counts as work, but it does. Number two, when you are feeling really low and cannot help but judge your own life, judge it by the people who love and support you. There are so many and, oh, look at them. Aren't those just some of the best people on the planet? Number three, you'd better rest now. You will need it. Really rest. You have permission. And it will take you too long a time to learn this. So get a head start. And finally, 
I know this is a pointless ask, but oh my god, please try to stay off your phone. Sincerely, and with so much love, Lauren, 2021. So, Lauren, tell me what it was like to write that letter. Oh, it was actually very healing to write that letter. Uh, It went through some iterations. And like I said in the letter, to some extent, sometimes we have to go through things to learn them. We don't, I don't, I don't want to miss my chances to have to do things the hard way sometimes and come out better for it. Then I had to drop down and think, okay, what did she really need to know? I really need to, needed to know that I would be okay and that I could trust myself. And if I could pass on that one secret message, it would be yes. I think that's the theme of that letter is to re- reach out, to really put the focus on networks. I think a lot of people found out this year that if their focus was not already on um, the community that they had around them, that that usually, I'd heard this from a lot of people, that that usually was the thing that helped the most, just putting the focus there. What happened at the start of that lockdown and what changed in your life from one day to the next? You know, what did that kind of look like in terms of your everyday life? Let's see, it's March 2020. We have just passed the one-year anniversary of the campfire in Butte County. So even though there still is a general sense of a really strapped and overall pretty traumatized community there's once after the one year marker, there's some sense of like a renewed push to move forward. You know, I remember the day one of the accountants in the office passed around a flyer about COVID-19. And I, I think probably like lots of people in the US had that bias of like, this stuff doesn't happen to me. This stuff doesn't happen to us. We haven't had a pandemic here. The flyer felt like, well, some people will like believe anything they read on the internet. Uh, I was pretty dismissive. Then again, I don't know if, you know, and looking back on that person, I don't know that it would have helped to have told her to not be dismissive. If I remember, it was like, oh, yeah, I'm done. This is too much. This on top of everything is too much. And that was the start of like a really rough few months because I think yeah, like a lot of people, whatever coping mechanisms I was used to leaning on were gone. And also the sense of, in some disasters, personal or even regional, can reach out to friends in other places who aren't going through it. But in this case, there wasn't a single person who wasn't going through it. So it's like, who do you reach out to who's, who's doing well? That was, I think, the, the big change. So as the executive director of the North Valley Housing Trust, you obviously have a very unique role and a unique vantage point in terms of what's been happening around housing and community redevelopment in the far north. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what you've been experiencing over the past year in terms of what's been happening around housing. Housing is tough right now. There's the sense of like, in a, in a region like ours, every person really counts And it makes you extra conscious of how hard each person has to work and take on to move anything forward. And I remember a a person who's been doing this affordable housing work for a long time in this region who I respect very much 
um, her sharing that at this point in her career, she had expected to be training the next generation of people to work on all these great programs that had been set up around housing. And instead, after redevelopment agency funding was cut in this region, we've just been experiencing this slow backslide. And she said she feels more like we're back to less than square one. It's like starting over. We had already had a couple waves of displacement around housing. Those people lost their housing immediately. For people who could, if they owned houses in Chico or were able to purchase houses in Chico, they moved in. And that created uh, an immediate displacement of people who were living in Chico. So if you were renting from somebody who lived in paradise, they came back for their rental, for example. That impacted housing market raised rents despite a price gouging ordinance and just made housing extremely competitive. We've had people come back. This is the speculation. People are moving back to the area um, because of work from home. Um, people leaving really expensive housing markets relative to Chico. So like coming from the Bay, from New York, coming from Portland, Seattle. So we've just continued to see that displacement escalate. We have too little shelter in Chico. We have too little housing and too little shelter. We have no low barrier shelter. So then as our shelter and housing crisis was escalating, um, Safe Space was not able to open as usual because of the pandemic. Uh, our one really main like workhorse congregate shelter, they had to drastically reduce the numbers that they were accepting um, to mitigate the risk from uh, COVID and congregate shelters. And they did a good job. They had only five cases uh, during the pandemic uh, with both, I think, guests and employees. That's a great number. And it meant that all those people were on the street instead. The, the people who had made up those larger numbers that would have made the risk worse were, were on the street instead. What was different about this pandemic from what you saw related to, you know, housing and community work? And, and you know, and how is recovery going to need to look different because of that? So one of the big things that we've also seen with housing is, so we've watched our population of unhoused people escalate. We now have some numbers that um, close to 25% of these people were displaced by the campfire directly. We don't have numbers for how many people were displaced indirectly. But whatever it was, a campfire disaster or an economic disaster or a personal disaster, our homeless population has been growing as our housing prices go up. We simply don't have enough housing. I think our county wait list is something like 1,600 people long right now for people who do want to access housing. So we've been watching that population grow. Um, even under our previous council, we failed to create a safe and sanctioned campground for either cars or for tents and people. And so we have had a couple form organically. And our previous council in Chico stopped the sweeps of these camps uh, because of the pandemic. We figured it was better for everybody to shelter in place, even if that shelter was in a park. Um, there has been a lot of aggressive rallying around people being camped there. And when our new council was elected, their first item was to start moving these people from place to place. Their stuff was trashed each time and there were no solutions offered to them. And so we're currently involved in legislation. Our, uh, the restraining order was placed against the uh, city by several people who are residents of those camps. Um, the ACLU has gotten involved, and um, there is a lawsuit for the violation of the uh, Martin v. Boise. So that's what's been happening, and it brought to mind, this is not the first time this has happened here, 
locally, this is Machupta territory in Chico, California, uh, Maidu territory in the region. And that's exactly how power structures worked against uh, indigenous people to this region not that long ago, 100 years, 150 years ago. So Native people are disproportionately represented in homeless populations, but also the way that they have been removed. Uh, for people in this region, this struck a historical chord, watching the way that certain power structures can dehumanize, criminalize, and then harm uh, people for living unsheltered uh, under vagrancy laws that were created specifically to target Native Americans, um, people who still live here. So I feel like that context has been really important to understand about how these laws uh, are created and what they serve, because I found in my work in housing that there is no amount of work we can do on the symptoms and the individual people and the individual crises that are unfolding if we don't take a different approach to power and what our power is organized around and housing and what our housing is organized around. Um, we'll just keep seeing the same, same patterns repeated and they cause a lot of harm. So I think it's important to remember that housing and equity and recovery is not just about making sure that the people who have suffered the worst get help. It is, that's really important. But we also have to look at the structures who are the people in the power structures that are making decisions to see whether those are in best service for equitable recovery or if those structures are always going to lean towards um, certain people being safe and other people not. You've mentioned a lot there around how this pandemic is coming out of a history of displacement and trauma in your community. Given that what role does an organization like the Housing Trust and other place-based organizations play in inclusive regional economic development? For the nonprofits, the, the role that they have all played is that they can be really flexible and they appeal really across the spectrum of people. Their work doesn't depend on a political climate. Their work depends on the solution of creating housing. And if you want to give money, you can give money. If you want to loan money to us, you can loan money to us. It's our work to put whatever funds we have available to work. Housing trusts, to do the work best that they're meant to do, also means educating the community about why affordable housing is needed, um, what policies are necessary to support the best kind of affordable housing development, and to say, you know, this is not, spending money on housing is not a cost this is an investment that saves communities money on other services um, and can support a local economy. So that's our role is to raise small and mid-sized funds to work across the spectrum of partners. Anybody who, anybody who has a stake in housing being more stable in their region, which I believe is everybody, uh, will work with them. Yeah. So Lauren, tell us, what are some of the solutions you see for coming out of this pandemic for inclusive economic recovery in terms of the policies or the investments or the infrastructure supports that are going to really support the communities most impacted? Yeah, so in general, even if your focus wasn't on inclusivity, to get actually effective solutions, the people with the most at stake in housing recovery need to be in charge of leading what the solutions are uh, and at the very least need to be consulted on them. So in housing, this is very specific to people of color and especially black people, because the racial gap in housing is getting worse, not better, since 1968 when fair housing was passed. So racially, we need to be paying attention to that. Uh, 
we need to be paying attention to age because the wealth gap between uh, generations is wide and growing. Uh, so when it comes to housing recovery, it's not the same across age groups. Certainly, there's an exception there for seniors, for people with disabilities. These people directly and the organizations that support them now need to be consulted in housing recovery because these are the people that get left behind um, with the housing that we have now. And uh, tenants and renters also need to be consulted. People say sometimes in our region that... Um, you know, we have 60%, 60% of our city is people who rent. And that's actually not true. Our city is more like 90% people who rent. And some of them then go on to own homes. But what happens to renters affects the vast majority of the population. And yet they, we have one elected official in our region who rents. Um, everybody else making decisions is already a homeowner. Um, as far as I know, we don't have anybody uh, in any of our elected positions that has experience living in affordable housing or with homelessness, um, at least not that they talk about. Um, and I feel like that's a really important piece that needs to change as well. If you don't have people who have experienced the breakdown in our systems of housing and recovery leading the solutions, then you will just continue to get solutions based on the experience of people who it's been going well enough for. I hope that's happening more but just in case it doesn't, the other big ones that are giving me some hope are that the federal government, for the first time in over 40 years, is turning towards investing in housing. Since the 70s, we spend less than 30% at the federal level. We spend less than 30% of what we were spending in the 70s on low-income housing. At this point, we also spend four times as much money federally subsidizing investment properties for people who make more than $200,000 a year as we do on uh, low-income housing programs. Uh, when I learned that fact, it made the housing landscape seem pretty much inevitable. So for the first time, the federal government is moving the needle towards investing in housing as a public service, as infrastructure. So that's great, but for regions like ours, we need some help at our state level and at our representative level to make sure that those funds reach us. We don't have the big banks, we don't have the big businesses, um, so we don't get attention if we can't advocate for it ourselves. So states need to pay attention to their rural, to their agricultural, to their disaster-affected communities, to their tribal communities who are already recovering from multiple layers of disasters and make sure that they're sending the human resources there to advocate on their behalf so that when resources become available, they, they actually make it to us. So what policy solutions do you see as being high levers for change? My, if I could change two, is it just two? If I could change three uh, laws around housing right now, one would be removing parking requirements. It keeps a lot of places from getting built just because we can't find the home for the cars means that the people don't get homes either. Um, yeah, affordable housing also has to include conversations around transportation and around energy because one, it's not affordable to uh, have to commute two hours a day and depend on a car. If, yeah, if you're poor, you can't depend on your car's reliable transportation. Um, and the other one is, is we're seeing that climate change, when it happens, affects the poorest communities first. So if we're building only for car infrastructure, if that's our answer to affordability, that will um, shoot us in the foot in, I would say in the long run, but it's actually happening. Like uh, right now, we probably have a fire warning. Um, 
The second one would be to remove single family zoning. And the third one would be to uh, revise fee structures um, so that small developers are encouraged. In our region, two of our biggest cities, they charge uh, fees per per unit, not per square foot. So nobody is incentivized to build the small one-bedroom studios that we need because they're going to be charged the same whether they're building that or four-bedroom house, and they sure as heck can make a lot more money on a four-bedroom house. So we need to really look at our fee structures, especially when it comes to affordable housing, like permanent supportive housing, because we know those people are, by creating that housing, you're actually saving on other city services. So... That would be my my third one, revised fee structures so that we can build the units we need. Um, yeah, those are great. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. So, Lauren, what are your hopes for the North Valley Housing Trust coming out of this year? My dream world, our dream world is this place where affordable housing developments don't have to take 10 years to put together in millions or billions of dollars and state contracts with state timelines and red tape but that we could find a way to come up with local solutions and local people who want to make them happen, take advantage of the ingenuity of our local development community, um, put together smaller and mid-sized solutions. You know, every housing solution doesn't have to be 100 units. Can we get four, eight, 12 built here and there and have a sort of collective response to this? Um, That's really how organizations like ours would work best to support. Um, And that's where a lot of the help is missing for those small and mid-sized developments. And we can... Hope for the best with federal policy and funding changing, state policy and funding changing. I hear him talk about money going to solutions, but I don't hear him talking about taking money from the causes or incentives of what created the housing problem in the first place. So I don't personally have a ton of faith in that. I mean, I I want the government to support housing and I want people to have as much access to that funding as possible. But my hope would be that regionally we understand that we can play a role in our own housing recovery and resiliency. And um, if it's not through the trust, I hope it's through something else. But I feel like the housing trust model is a really great way uh, for regions to do that. Yeah, that's really great. My last question for you is, who do you hope hears this podcast and what do you want them to take away? I hope that people who are sensitive and who care a lot and who have been watching their communities and their cities or their um, areas of passion suffer from various issues and think that they might not be enough to take it on. I hope they hear this and that they know that they are and that they're rock stars and that um, all of those feelings around being too vulnerable or too attached or um, too sensitive are actually really important to their work and that they recognize themselves as the rock stars they are. I hope that people who have been left out of all of these housing conversations who get to hear this uh, accept my heartfelt apology that they ever had to go through that and doubt their own experiences and doubt their own voices. It's not fair, and there's really no excuse for it. And I'm sorry that it took other people suffering for you to finally be listened to. Um, I hope that people in the position to set policies and budgets hear this and go have a conversation with the service providers or constituents who they know um, have been affected by this, but maybe they haven't made an effort to talk to 
before. I hope they go out and talk to them and they take seriously what they have to say because that's where the richest solutions are going to come for from their area. Well, that's yeah, yeah, that's good. I think that's, that's it. good. We definitely think you're a rock star, Lauren, and appreciate all the things you've had to share with us today. Oh, thank you. So, Lauren, if you could write a letter to yourself in 2022, what would you want your future self to remember about this moment? What advice would you want to share? Okay, so dear future self, I believe that you are doing amazing because I know that your passions are service and work, and I'm sure that your community is rallying and healing and taking care of each other and uh, full of the kind of uh, solutions that you and your community have been hoping for for years. So congratulations. And I want you to take a moment to feel just grateful and proud of how well you've done. I want you to remember that work isn't everything and that the world is full of inspiration. And if you need to change, that's okay. And if you're not doing great, I want you to remember that one day uh, here today, you were feeling great and you had a chance to talk about an arc of a year that went from the worst to the best that you've ever felt that introduced some of the worst in the best, uh, I think, in people in general and the tumultuous issues that we're facing as people on planet Earth at this time. And don't forget that things change. You've gone through hard things before, and you will again. So hang in there and reach out to your people. It's almost like you want to make sure that your future self remembers, like, looking out for the things that they'd rather leave behind. You kind of want to make sure that they stay humble. No, just keep taking care of yourself and your people. Sincerely, your biggest fan with the most at stake in your well-being and with a lot of love, Lauren in May 2021. So Lauren, thank you so much. That was a really fantastic interview and I just want to appreciate you taking the time today to share all of that with us. Thank you so much. I can't wait to get up to Chico and have a cup of coffee with you. Thank you. We would love to have you anytime. It really is an amazing place. I love it. I don't think there's any other place like this valley. That's why I care so much about it. I'd now like to introduce you to two colleagues from the Sacramento Promise Zone, Tyrone Williams and Julius Austin. Tyrone is Deputy Executive Director at the Sacramento Housing and Redevelopment Agency, the lead organization for the Sacramento Promise Zone, and Julius is the Sacramento Promise Zone Coordinator. They share their stories of facing personal challenges from the lockdown while leading the critical work of the agency in a new remote landscape. Dear Tyrone and Julius from 2020, the two of you will experience a year that will impact your lives and your perspectives. 2020 will reinforce the importance of the work that you do. You've just welcomed new staff members and have their training schedules planned for the next 90 days. However, 
in less than 30 days, you will experience a cataclysmic shift in your life and you will live through a worldwide pandemic. All unnecessary travel will cease and you will not see your daughters or your relatives in person for over a year. Everything you planned will come to a halt. As the death toll mounts and on a daily basis, you hear of how infections are reaping havoc on families, particularly in communities of color. Though everyone in the world would be impacted and altered by the pandemic, people who fit the target demographic focus of the Promazone work will be disproportionately affected and in greater need of support and resources. Your heart will break and your anxiety will grow. The COVID-19 pandemic, social justice movements, and focus on anti-racism will shine an extremely bright spotlight on all of the issues and barriers that you have been working to impact and resolve. Tyrone, you will pray continuously for the safety of your daughters, especially the one who's a flight attendant. You will watch your wife learn how to teach her fifth grade class online and push past an onslaught of technical difficulties and frustrations. You will love her deeper and admire her more because of her unwavering commitment to students. Julius, you will have to deal with stress and anxieties as you guide your staff members through pandemic quarantines, teleworking, and returning to working in the office. You have to be supportive of your family from a distance since they live in other states. You will question whether you are doing okay with the pandemic because you're more of an introvert that likes solitude or wonder if you're convincing yourself of that as a way to deal with the solitude and isolation that the pandemic has forced you into. Thankfully, you will be okay. You are resilient. You will thrive because you are uniquely positioned to help thousands of people deal with the impacts of the pandemic and the trauma caused by racism. You are not alone. You will see that though the issues highlighted and created by the pandemic and anti-racism movement are vast, there are opportunities to create innovative solutions that result in more inclusive and equitable outcomes. It will become clear to both of you that before, during, and after the pandemic, it holds true that working together to focus on the people who need it most is the best way, and maybe the only way, to eradicate disparities and inequalities. Now that you've survived 2020, you'll begin to thrive in the months to come. For hope springs eternal, and through it all, the work of changing lives continues. We will continue to work together and build even more partnerships that will create positive impact and fulfill the promise of giving everyone in the zone and beyond a chance at a great life full of opportunities. Sincerely, Tyrone and Julius, May 2021. Thank you both so much for that letter. There was a lot in there, really powerful stuff. And I'm really grateful to have you both on this podcast episode today and to learn more about your experiences and the work that you all are engaged with in Sacramento. 
Julius, I thought I'd start with you and would like to just hear a little bit more about the Sacramento Promise Zone and the role that you play. So I am the Sacramento Promise Zone coordinator. So um, Tyrone is the director. So under his great leadership, I direct the daily operations of the Sacramento Promise Zone. And ultimately, we are charged with uh, facilitating the convening of, of leaders across Sacramento in all sectors to get those leaders to focus more resources and opportunities on the most distressed areas of Sacramento. And uh, it's wonderful work because it's holistic and, and we're looking at uh, opportunities in education and health and jobs, economic development and sustainably built communities. Uh, and in that, that focus area, a lot of people may not uh, know right off the back what that is, but we're thinking about things such as housing, community revitalization, uh, neighborhood safety, uh, art and opportunities for cultural expression. Was there anything that was surprising about the impact of the pandemic that you weren't expecting? One of the positive things was the, the, the Promise Zone is set up to make sure that the normal operations around Sacramento is folks working together collaboratively to create greater impact. And because we already had that infrastructure set up, because partners are already working together, it was natural and it was an opportunity for us to move quickly into helping people with the needs that they might have, whether that be helping people uh, get food, helping people to get uh, testing resources for, for the uh, COVID-19 uh, virus, uh, to help people get things that they needed to do, distance learning or teleworking. Um, so that was something that, though it was not surprising, it was wonderful to see mm -hmm. that the infrastructure helped make a difference immediately. Can you share just a little bit more about what are the components of that infrastructure that have really allowed the communities that you work in those organizations to, to pivot and to mobilize quickly? So because uh, leaders from all of those diverse backgrounds are already engaging with one another, understand what one another uh, is doing every day and the work that they do, um, it makes it a lot easier for us to come together and partner uh, on projects or programs or to share resources with one another. And it also, we have a, a pipeline of information sharing. So we're able to share the information about what everyone across Sacramento is doing through channels such as social media, e-blast, and a monthly newsletter. Anything that you see is going to shift in the ways that you work coming out of this or your priorities coming out of this? No, actually. You know, partnerships help create greater impact. And so that's what we want to continue to foster. Hopefully one day we'll be able to say there's no need for a Promazone because everyone living in the Promazone area will have access to great opportunities and resources. And they'll be living uh, wonderful lives because of that. So Tyrone, I wanted to turn to you now. I, I did want to hear more about the agency. So you're a deputy director of the Sacramento Housing and Redevelopment Agency. Can you tell us more what it has been like to lead this work uh, around affordable housing and community revitalization during a pandemic? Well, my area of focus is um, housing, uh, finance, community development, asset and portfolio management, 
and new initiatives that include the Promise Zone and Choice Neighborhoods. So uh, our work did not change. Uh, projects that needed to be constructed, the, the great news was none of the construction really got behind. I think uh, since most of it is done outside, uh, we were able to really uh, keep those things moving. But really where the, the challenge was, was deploying about 98% of our employees who worked in the office out of the office into their homes. And uh, when that meant buying numerous computers and computer systems and connecting people to networks. And it was a, a, it was a Herculean task. Uh, but our IT department are... Uh, they're, 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 they're super men and women, and they stood up to the, the moment. But then it was, you know, some people not only were trying to work at home, but had kids at home or had others who they were responsible for. So trying to create and be sensitive to this new way of not only living, but working and interacting uh, was one that we took a lot of time and attention here at our agency, even before the pandemic, work-life balance was very important to us. And a culture of teamwork and supportiveness is really the foundation of our success. And so we had teams who were able to, to help people through these transitions and be flexible because there was no rule book. We were creating, we were building the plane as we were flying it, but we were determined it wasn't going to crash and burn. And so uh, uh, I'm happy to report we're still soaring high and, uh, and it's because of the great people and the teamwork that has made the dream work here at SHRA. That's great. That is really great to hear you all were able to step to that challenge, which does sound Herculean, as you, as you mentioned. Um, great. So what do you think, getting back to this idea of, of you know, housing and community revitalization and, and redevelopment. What do you think is the role of housing and redevelopment in supporting inclusive economic recovery? I think they're absolutely essential. Uh, it's hard to recover economically if you don't have a, a, a safe uh, and decent place to lay your head. Uh, housing is really fundamental for which all other things emerge. And for us at the agency, our focus is really on those who are on the lower uh, end of the housing spectrum. Uh, we um, direct activities related to homeless shelters. We oversee all of the Section 8 or Housing Choice vouchers. Uh, we oversee all of the public housing. So folks who are in most need of stable housing are, are our clients and those who are who we support. So our work at the agency uses housing as the, as the foundation for all things. That include economic prosperity. We're not just narrowly focused on housing, even though that is our expertise. Uh, but when it comes to community economic development, we want to uh, uh, approach that from many ways, uh, many directions to end up with a holistic community revitalization plan that touches the whole community and therefore it lifts all of the community. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. The the interconnections between all of them, the critical ways in which they all intersect. 
what would you say in terms of who needs to be at the table when it comes to making policies or funding, you know, choices around funding investments to, to ensure that that is truly inclusive? Well, my perspective is if it's going to impact somebody, then a representative from that group must be at the table. There are so many programs and policies that have unintentional negative connotations and impacts because somebody thought that they didn't need to hear from somebody who was going to be impacted. So first and foremost, at the heart of it, as Julius has described, the promise zone is about collaboration. And collaboration means sometimes inviting folks who've not been at the table before and giving them a seat and a voice, a respected voice at the table. And that's really how we operate and why we've been able uh, in, these, uh, in the years of the Promise Zone to have such a huge impact with our partners and leverage over $180 million into underserved communities. So our role at the agency, even though we are um, an agency that serves the city and the county, is really not to be someone who comes in the room and sucks up all the air. That we really create an opportunity to hear from others and actively uh, listen with an intent to hear and act. And that's our work throughout the Promise Zone. Yeah, that's critical. I really like that, the intentionality um, throughout that whole process that you just described. Um, So, Julius, same question for you. Who do you think needs to be at the table to ensure the processes for developing policy and funding are truly inclusive and supportive of economic development in Sacramento? Um, I think oftentimes people like to use the phrase that they want to give uh, a voice to the voiceless. But I think that people need to rethink that. I think people need to recognize that those people that you are calling voiceless are not voiceless. They're not voiceless. Right. They have far too often been uh, institutionalized um, and excuse me, they far too often have been muted and silenced by institutions and by institutional racism. And so it's not that they are voiceless, it's that we need to uplift and amplify their voices. So I think that's important. I also think that you can layer that. Uh, the intentionality of bringing the community to the the table by layering that with bringing uh, other kind of experts and et cetera to the table who are used to dealing with the community, engaging the community, and are a part of the community as well. And so I think if you bring all of those folks to the table and you really, really double down on your intentionality, once you take a seat and you look at the table and you pay attention to who's missing, and make sure that there's representation from all ages, from all ethnicities, uh, from men, women, LGBTQ community, right? You you must be super intentional and make sure that you don't move forward without making sure that everyone is present. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for that. Julius, who do you hope hears this podcast and what do you want them to take away from it? I hope everyone hears it, right? I I want everybody to hear this and have, because it takes all of us, right? Whether you believe it or not, we are all interconnected. Uh, We all have 
uh, the power and the ability to make a difference. Yes, we all will play different roles in that. But I think uh, every single uh, person, no matter what age they are, no matter uh, where they live across our country, uh, matter of fact, we're, we're a global community now. So folks around the world can hear and, and, and support and make a difference. Um, but I think it's really important that no matter where we stand, that we recognize there are people who need help the most. And we recognize that there are people who have been historically disenfranchised. And so if there was focus placed on disenfranchising those people, we need to place extra focus on supporting and making a difference and making things equal for those those very people who have been disenfranchised and discriminated against. There's one last thing that we wanted to ask you to do before we end today's session. If you could write a letter to yourself in 2022, what would you want your future self to never forget about this experience that you've had this past year? What do you hope for yourself in 2022? Okay. Dear Tyrone, in 2022, don't ever forget all that you've seen and experienced in 2020. The lives that were lost, those who had serious medical complications, those who were concerned about losing their jobs and their income and their housing. I hope you still have an attitude of gratitude and that in your pocket every day, you continue to carry the rock that's the reminder of how grateful you should be for all that you have and have accomplished. So the future's gonna be right. There's gonna still be some challenges, but Tyrone, you'll come out stronger, you'll be bolder, and you'll have greater impact because you've lived and thrived past the pandemic. Keep the faith, Tyrone, in 2021. Dear Julius, in 2022, make sure that you never forget all the things that you saw and did during the pandemic. You saw so much need, uh, people struggling to find childcare, people dealing with unemployment. You saw people dealing with food insecurity. You saw so many students fall behind in their education but you also saw amazing people come together to make a difference. And you were deeply involved in that. And so never forget that doing God's work, sacrificing and making a difference for others can empower you and strengthen you and put you in spaces where you need to be to make a difference for others. I also wanna make sure that you never forget that on top of the pandemic, you had to deal with the trauma of being a black man in America. And though that is not the only thing that defines you, it does greatly impact you. But in 2022, you have an opportunity to be someone who leads us into not a, a space that we call our going back to normal, but a space that we call our new normal, where there's more focus on equity, which is better than equality, and a space that gives great opportunities uh, for everyone, but especially those who have been disenfranchised and discriminated against and those people who need it the most. 
Keep fighting. Take care. Julius, 2021. I just wanted to really thank you for, for your participation in this episode and kind of being so honest with us and really allowing us to kind of come with you a little bit back into what this past year has been like and what your current work has been like. And again, I want to thank our guests, Lauren, Tyrone, and Julius for joining the podcast and sharing your experiences and perspectives. It has been really powerful to reflect with you and to imagine how the future might be. And thanks to our listeners for joining us on this journey these past six episodes of our series. We set out to learn about the impacts of the pandemic on people across California, and I've had eye-opening conversations with high school students, college students, community and nonprofit leaders, as well as small business owners and entrepreneurs. Their experiences have demonstrated the deep inequities that exist across our state, as well as the resiliency of individuals and their communities. From the stories we heard, we are discovering what it takes to make recovery more equitable. Please visit jff.org to join the conversation and make real change together. This has been Communities in Recovery, presented by JFF. We are on a mission to create an equitable and resilient economy that everyone can contribute to and benefit from. And while we can't change the past, we can look toward the future with hope. Thanks for listening.